Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the same landscape. It's made of the same stuff, and the cassiterite is still there, woven through the rock, just as the history is woven through our understanding of the place. In this week's podcast, we're setting foot in a new age. An age powered by a beautiful new metal. Bronze. Used for war and peace. To make it, you needed a rare ingredient found in these islands. And three and a half thousand years ago, at least... The world came knocking, and the British Isles began trading. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me, and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. In the last podcast, we travelled with you to the Welsh Atlantis and the legend of Cantragwylod. Where's the next stop on our journey? Well, this week, we're heading to a place that has history woven into its cliffs. A place that became an important cog in the developing Bronze Age. One of the richest sources of tin in the entire world. It's Cornwall. The Giver Tin Mine in Pendine, in Cornwall. It's quite unusual in the context of the hundred places because, um, well, Giver Tin Mine is quite modern. It was in the late 1700s, really, before anyone started extracting tin there. But the story of Cornish tin is ancient. And I chose Giver. I, I did a little bit of filming at Giver Tin Mine. In fact, I've filmed there a couple of times uh, because it, it, it survived as a working British tin mine until late in the day, right up into the 1990s, uh, when the price of tin fell globally uh, and the costs, basically, of keeping the mine open, it just became uneconomical. And so it, it closed down then. Uh, but it still it, it, it functions as a tourist attraction. Uh, and you can go down the shafts uh, and go into the, the chambers and you can see what it was like. And f- frankly, it's a fright, you know, to think that, that people in the 1990s were working in those sorts of conditions, which they look quite Victorian in a way, with the rocks dripping wet 
confined spaces. Uh, you know, you can hear the sea. It's all very claustrophobic and the, the fact that people worked in those conditions in the modern world seems almost inconceivable but it, it means it's a place where you can go and experience uh, the reality of Cornwall as, as the source of tin and one of the themes of the story that I've been trying to tell is the idea that the British Isles have been a special place at certain times and they have offered the world certain things that were otherwise unobtainable and that without access to these British Isles at specific times in the past, the whole history of the world would have worked out differently. And I find that amazing. Tin is an element and the elements are kind of, they're listed in terms of how much of each element there is. So the, the most commonplace element is oxygen, right? There's, there's lots of oxygen. So it's number one on the list. Tin comes in at number 49 out of 90-odd. So the simple point to make is that there isn't, nor has there ever been, much tin. It's always been rare. It's hard to come by, okay? Now, you need tin to make bronze, uh, to make the, the alloy, an alloy is a mix of metals, to make the alloy bronze, you need to bring together tin and copper. Uh, and you actually need them in proportions of about nine to one. You need about nine times as much copper as you need tin. And if you bring them together, you get bronze. Now, everybody has heard of the Bronze Age. You know, there was a time, a long time in the history of our species when we depended on bronze for swords for spearheads, axes, tools, farming equipment, everything. Like if you imagine uh, the, the world being held up by a scaffolding of bronze, you could say. It was central. So the, the ancient Greeks and, and the Romans, they depended on bronze at times. And without bronze, well, they wouldn't have been able to do what they did or they would have, or they would have had to find other ways to do it. Okay. Now, in the ancient world, which is to say before anyone crossed the Atlantic and found the new world, in the ancient world, there were only a handful of places where you could go and get tin. One was the, sort of in the borderlands between the countries that we know as Germany and the Czech Republic. There were tin mined there. Uh, there was some in Brittany, in what we call France. Uh, there was some in the Iberian Peninsula, what we call, well, Spain and Portugal. And there might have been a few other small sources besides on the European continent. But by far and away, the richest source that anybody knew about that was available was Cornwall. Imagine that, because if you live in Athens or Rome, Cornwall's quite far away. You know, it takes a bit of getting to. By 4,000 years ago, people are looking for bronze, making bronze. So they're looking, for, they're looking to bring together tin and copper. You know, they need, they need those two elements. The copper's not particularly commonplace either. Copper comes in at number 26 on the list of elements. So it's, it's more common than tin, but, it, it, but it's still relatively hard to come by. You know, eventually, later in the story, everyone began to depend on iron and steel. And as it turns out, the raw material for iron is, is easier to come by. Uh, iron ore crops up much more readily 
You know, it's in Britain, it's in the British Isles, but it's all over the place. You can much more easily, you'll be closer to a source of iron ore, in, in, mostly than you are to a source of copper or, or tin. Uh, but that, that technology came later. For thousands of years, people needed access to copper and tin to make their tools. Because copper, as we mentioned before, is in relation to the Amesbury archer, uh, who was buried beside Stonehenge, or close to Stonehenge. He was buried with a couple of copper knives. Now, they, they work to an extent, but copper's so soft that a sharp edge wears off of, of a copper blade very quickly. It would be frustratingly annoying to use a copper knife because it's too soft. You need to bring it together with something else. And in the case of bronze, you bring it together with tin and you get a much harder edge. Bronze is brilliant. Bronze is a fantastic metal. Although it was, it was superseded by iron because it was easier for people to get access to the raw materials. But, but bronze is a fantastic metal. It works really, really well. And it was really, really desirable. And it looks good. There's a lot of technology, though, in making bronze. There's a lot of technology actually in making tin. When it comes to metals like um, copper uh, and gold, say, they occur in pure form in the Earth's crust. You know, you can find gold, actual gold. You can find actual copper. Okay? But tin doesn't work like that. Tin is always and only within a rock called cassiterite. And to get it from cassiterite, you have to smash up the cassiterite ore, grind it down into a powder, and then heat it in a fire, in a furnace, until it reaches a temperature where it becomes a, a liquid metal. Okay, and then you can do something with it. It's a clever trick. In fact, the Cornish flag, uh, if you've seen it, is a, a white cross on a black background. You know, if you've been on holiday to Cornwall, you'll have seen it. It commemorates not just Christianity in terms of the cross, but it's also the fact that you get white silvery tin out of black cassiterite. So the Cornish flag remembers uh, that fact. And so people had identified Cornwall uh, in the ancient world, in ancient times, as by far and away the best source of this tin that they needed. And if you can get tin and you can get copper, you bring them together with heat. So you bring the two together uh, over a fire, in a fire. And it has to be a hot fire. You can't just do this over a campfire. You have to get it up to, you know, a thousand degrees. And when that, when you reach that magic temperature, it's like a, it's like, it's like a love match in a way. You know, you lie uh, copper and tin together on a on a bed, if you like, and in the heat of the fire, they come together as one. And that oneness is bronze. And if you if you imagine for for people who had always and only known stone tools. To see metal being made for the first time must have been extraordinary. Let alone how people came upon, by a process of some sort of experimentation, how anyone ever came upon the making of metal is another question for another day. But the fact was that the technology had been learned. But imagine someone coming into your community and showing you the trick. So basically, they would bring together two solids. They might look like stone to you. And then they would bring them together in a fire. And all at once, the, what had been rock becomes a liquid. And it comes together. And then once it's liquid, this person, this bronze smith, would pour the liquid 
which is so burning so hot it's almost too bright to look at. It's like looking at the sun. He poured this into a mould, a clay mould that he had pre-prepared, and then literally seconds later, he would pull out of the mould a sword. Now that's a sword from the stone. Imagine how unforgettable that magic would have appeared to you. So that it's no wonder that the story of Arthur and pulling a sword from a stone has lasted in the way that it has. Because if you had seen that feat accomplished, you would never forget it. And lo and behold, where where is Arthur supposed to have been born and raised? Tintagel, in Cornwall. No wonder, because that's the place where the tin is. And that would be the perfect place for bringing together tin and copper to make bronze. And and it's personified there, it's there folded into the legend of King Arthur, the tragic warrior king. You know, how amazing is that? But the fact is that people had identified, ancient prospectors had identified Cornwall as a source for this extraordinary ingredient long ago. We know that the Phoenicians were coming to Cornwall three and a half thousand years ago. And they, were, and they were mooring their ships at St Michael's Mount in the bay in Cornwall uh, at Marazion so that they could get tin to take back to the Mediterranean old world. Now, now interestingly, I mean, we all know it as St Michael's Mount. You know, that's what it's called. Uh, and it, for most people, it's synonymous with the, with the monastery that sits on top of it, you know, that gives it that, that distinctive shape. And it's, it's, it's twinned with Mont Saint-Michel across the channel in Brittany, which has an even fussier, prissier uh, monastery on, on top of it. So Mont Saint-Michel, St. Michael's Mount, you know, they're, they're twinned. There's been a monastery there in Cornwall s- since the 12th century, and then it fell down in an earthquake. And another one, the, the one that's there now, was, was rebuilt in the 14th century. But the Cornish people, the Cornish have, a, have their own language, as most people will know, and it's a it's a relative of Welsh and Irish and Gaelic. It's 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 one of those older languages that were here in these in this part of the world before Latin and there, and before English. Uh, in, and in the Cornish language, Saint Michael's Mount is called Carigloos and Coos, which means the grey rock in the woods. Now you think about that. That means that the Cornish language is so old. It has roots going down so deep into the stuff of Britain that it remembers a time before one of the last inundations of rising sea level after the last ice age. You know, we've talked about losing land at Cantra Gwylod, where rising sea levels submerged a whole forest and was never forgotten. Well, likewise, there was a time that the Cornish language remembers when there was a big grey rock surrounded by a forest Carigloos and Coos, the grey rock in the woods. And then subsequently, the sea levels rose and turned that into an island with no trees. Okay, now the Phoenicians, as we've already mentioned, were coming and mooring their ships at St Michael's Mount three and a half thousand years ago. But the Cornish language is so old that this is, this is what it remembers. It remembers other times. You know, the roots, the roots of the British Isles are deep, deep, deep. Uh, just as tin is, is, is within the black rock of cassiterite, 
you know, so that so the roots of the British Isles are in, go down impossibly deep into the rock of the place. Cassiterite is the is the name of the rock from which we get tin, and Herodotus, the Greek writer, come historian, he described our part of the world as the Cassiterides, the which means in Greek the the tin islands. Cassiteros is the Greek word for tin, and he wrote about how we get our tin from the Cassiterides, and he knew he's writing in the fifth century BC, wow, and he knew then that our part of the world was where you got the tin. And he had identified the Cassiterides as, as islands off the northwest coast of Europe. And he was well-travelled in his own lifetime. Um, he went through, you know, Egypt, Babylon. He crossed the Don. He was in Russia. He followed the north coast of the Black Sea. He got around a bit, but he, he never got anywhere near us. OK, so the fact that he knew about it and wrote about it properly as a place where you got tin means that he was in contact with people who had been. So the knowledge, the knowledge of our part of the world is the place where you got tin, in fact it was synonymous with tin, goes back thousands of years. We were on the map of the ancient world thousands of years ago. And, and bronze, bronze had other sort of implications for our species. Iron ore is commonplace, it's all over. You know, it's on this. It's close to the surface. You can get at it, and you, and therefore, with with the same sort of technology, you can make iron. But because bronze is made of two relatively rare elements, copper and tin, most people don't have ready access to the stuff. So it means it implies relationships between people, trade links. In order to get hold of either bronze tools or Alternatively, the raw materials, copper and or tin, you need supply lines. You need contact with people, sometimes at a great distance from you. And that's, that's sophistication. You know, to, get, to get the copper or the tin, you need to have something that they want in return. You, know, you need to have something of, of similar value. Uh, it implies that if you, if you controlled either the copper or the tin or you controlled the trade routes, that's power. You know, if you're if you're dominating a place where there is tin or a place where there is copper, then that confers power on you and the people around you, because you've got something that that people want. And so it means that thousands of years ago there was that level of sophistication between people because they had to be talking, communicating, they had to have a knowledge of geography, they had to know where things were, how to get to them. You know, it's important to remember that in the past these complicated trade networks are already there. You know, we flatter ourselves with you know, bringing in whatever, you know, jackfruit from Asia, you know, to make vegan pulled pork and we bring avocados from South America and all the rest of it, the trades there. But these long distance supply lines were there thousands of years ago and they were there because it was driven by need. Somebody somewhere had worked out that if you could bring together copper and tin, you could make something really good, which is the beautiful bronze, which is hard, which you can put a sharp edge on. You can make swords and spearheads. You can arm an army. Uh, you can harvest the crops. You can make jewellery. You can do all these things. And people wanted it. And in order to get what they wanted, they could uh, coordinate and maintain a system that gave them access to a remote source. 
and, and most inconveniently, you might have said, for the Mediterranean world, to get at the best source of tin, you had to know people in Cornwall and somehow get there by ship or overland and bring this stuff back. And so more than anything else, it's just, it's one, it's not the only example, but it's an example of the way in which our part of the world, our little archipelago, has mattered and been on the map of the world for a long time. If you look at a map of Europe, we can look quite peripheral. You know, we're kind of off on the off on the edge, you know, bobbing about on the at the start of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and you could think that, you know, that no one would have known we were there. <laughs> but, but the reality is that people did know we were there and they had to know we were there. They had to know exactly where we were. Because from the, from the Bronze Age onwards and for a long time thereafter, they were coming to Cornwall to get the tin, such that the Greeks called our part of the world the Tin Isles, the Tin Islands. That's what we were. We were where you came to get tin. I love that. Tin today is so associated with communal garden tin cans, it's hard to think of it as being so rare and highly prized. Yeah, of course you don't make tin cans from tin. Ah yeah, they're made from steel or aluminium, aren't they? What's pure tin like? It's a beautiful thing, tin. Once you smash up a bit of cassiterite rock and heat it... What does it look like, cassiterite rock? Well, well, it's an interesting question, actually. It's, um... I think we've mentioned before that because everything started with tools made of stone, after thousands of years, our ancestors were pretty sophisticated geologists. Although, obviously, they wouldn't have called themselves that. But they understood that there were all sorts of different kinds of stone and rock and that it could all be put to different uses. You know, if you knew, what, if you knew your stuff, you know, you could exploit different sources of stone for different things. So... It, it, it's no surprise, really, that eventually they were very sophisticated and they knew they could identify the traces of an element like tin or copper. They could, they could recognise it from the, the colours of it, of it eroding and oxidising out. So for someone who happened to be, let's say, sailing past Cornwall in a ship, who knew a thing or two about rock, they'd be looking up at the cliffs as they were sailing past and from time to time, they would see telltale streaks of colour. Where tin is in the rock, the rock of, of Cornwall is mostly granite, very hard. But where there's cassiterite within the granite, uh, and it was on the surface and being weathered out by, by rain and whatever, it would show up as um, a purple or a, or a silvery streak on the cliffs. And if there was co- sometimes copper and tin occur together, and where there was copper present in the rock, they would, that would be the green, that verdigris that you see on old bronze statues in the town square, you know how they go, they all turn green, verdigris. Well, there would have been verdigris streaks on the cliffs as well. So people, that's how people would have identified that there was tin in the rock of Cornwall, because they would have seen the colour of cassiterite, you know, so they knew, right, we can go prospecting there. When you grind down cassiterite and apply heat when the tin comes out and solidifies as metal, it's ethereally beautiful. It's brighter than silver, be- silvery metal. And if you get an ingot 
of tin, which is valuable. You know, an ingot of tin is, is a valuable commodity. You can bend it in your hands quite easily. It's very soft. And if you hold it up to your ear while you bend it, it gives off, it makes this high-pitched squeaking noise that the old-time miners called the cry of the tin. It almost sounds like it's protesting at being, it squeaks, eek, as you bend it. So it, it, it's, quite a mag, it's quite a magical material. It's, it's terribly bright and shiny, soft, malleable, makes a sound. You know, so it would be quite, be quite captivated. If I was to hand you an ingot of tin, you'd want it, <laughs> like, like gold. You know, it's, that kind of, it's got that kind of look about it. So that without knowing anything about its material value, you would be attracted to something about it just instinctively. You know, it appeals to the eye. And that's another thing to bear in mind, you know, the sophistication of the ancestors. They were able to recognise where they could get the things that they needed. You know, and in the case of either the metals themselves, like copper or gold, they, you know, they, they come out of the ground as they are. But more, but more amazingly, in the case of something like tin, those people thousands of years ago had identified the rock from which tin might be obtained. And they could spot it at a distance. And that's why, you know, that's what, you know, Giver is in the, is in the story because, you know, it's a, you can go. And Cornwall's, it's different. It, it's, a, it's a little world apart, isn't it? You know, you cross the Tamar into Cornwall on the way west and you, you become aware that the landscape has changed. You know, the granite, and the cliffs, the proximity to the sea. I mean, the, the, the Cornish Peninsula, you know, it sticks out like a, like a toe into the Atlantic. You're close to the sea at all times, you can smell it. And when you go to Giver, you're on the cliffs above the water, above the sea, and, you know, there's the, there's the seagrass and the smell of the salt. And that is the Cassiterides. You know, that, that landscape is specifically what Herodotus and, and, and the like of Herodotus meant when they said the Cassiterides, they meant Cornwall. And so when you're there beside the disused workings of Giver tin mine. And those tin mines are dotted about all over, all over the peninsula. That's the Cassiterides. And you're in that world that was known to Phoenicians and Greeks and the rest of them that came here to get something that they desperately needed and desperately wanted because without, without bronze, what would the world have done? Your bronze was, was what everybody needed for, for certain things you know, for a thousand years and more. But for Cornish tin, it might not have been possible to have as much bronze. And the ancient world would have had to, it would have solved the problem differently, wouldn't it? I mean, people are problem solvers. They would have solved the conundrum in, in another way. And that would have changed everything. It would have changed our relationship to the rest of the ancient world, and it would have changed the ancient world itself. It's an incredible image. Phoenician trading ships moored off the Cornish coast thousands of years ago. Yes, it is. And it, it, it plays into all sorts of um, myth and legend later on. You know, obviously Arthur and Excalibur. But there's long been a tradition that Joseph of Arimathea, who was Jesus' 
uncle. <laughs> it's historically speaking. You know, if, if Jesus is a man, and we take that as a historical fact, you know, if there was the man Jesus and his mother Mary, well, you know, his uncle is Uncle Uncle Joseph of Arimathea, okay? And uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea uh, in tr- is traditionally thought of as, as having been a metal trader. That's how he had money. That's how he had the private tomb where he could, where the body of Jesus could be laid and everything. He had, he had cash. He had some. He was, he was wealthy, and he was coming back and forth to, to places trading tin. Now, if in, if indeed he was a metal trader, then he, he would have come to Cornwall because that's where you went to get the tin. And and of course that's folded into the the great you know hymn Jerusalem and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's pastures green. You know, the idea that, that's sort of buried within that tradition is that the infant Jesus is born and then he disappears off the, out, of the, out of the history books until he's 30. He just goes away. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't do anything else until he's a grown man, as, as far as the, as the Bible is concerned. And there's, a, there's a, an enduring legend that he, he went away with his uncle Joseph and he was, spent some of the time in our part of the world Hence the, hence the association with Glastonbury, Joseph of Arimathea, the Holy Grail. That's why that's all folded into that part of the territory. And Now, whatever you make of all of that, Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, and the rest of it, there's no doubt that people from the Eastern Mediterranean, which, is, which includes the Holy Land, would have been coming out through the Mediterranean, out through the Straits of Gibraltar, turning right, up the Atlantic and come into Cornwall in search of tin. So that movement of people at that time is a demonstrable archaeological fact. So something that sounds completely fanciful, you know, the idea of a, you know, Jesus having spent time in the southwest of England, you think, oh, what a lot of nonsense. But there's no reason why not. There's no reason why him and many other people from the eastern Mediterranean weren't familiar with Cornwall because there were ships coming and going all the time. It's great. Given that tin was in demand and they had lots of it, did Cornwall become rich from producing it? We assume that it did. I mean, there was civilization. Again, that's, you know, we keep coming up against these archaeological sea words. And, and civilization's difficult. I mean, civilization, technically speaking, implies sort of city living. Amongst other things, it, it takes for granted that people are coming together in those large clusters of, of population and civilization with bureaucracy and organization and a, you know, a, a top-down pyramidal hierarchical structure and all the rest of it. But, but it's, it, it's assumed that during the Bronze Age there was the opportunity for the beginnings of all of that because, first of all, you've got farming, which has given you surplus food, which has allowed specialisation. So not everyone is spending all their time in the fields making food. There's enough food. And and surplus food is being collected, you know, in, let's say, in inverted commas, the city, where a powerful individual or group controls its distribution. You know, so there's a collecting together of the of the food. And the bureaucracy and organisation that implies lets people specialise in things like, you know, metalworking, obtaining 
materials, making jewellery, making things that people don't need but that they want. So the assumption is that Cornwall would have provided the means for all of that to happen. And people who could, by, by force of personality or by force of arms or whatever, who could get in control of the tin would have had power. Now, archaeologically speaking, we don't necessarily find the physical proof of all of that. But the assumption is, I mean, we know, I mean, we'll come later to um, copper mining in Wales later on, and there was a long sustained period when these islands of ours were a source of very valuable commodities. And valuable commodities confer power on those that can control them. And so there would have been wealth, power, and the rest of the of the kind of social relationships that all of that implies in Cornwall. It would have been a place of note and a place of powerful people. So the centres of power and influence in the British Isles would have been much different during the Bronze Age, with Cornwall a major player. Yeah, but I mean, as we've already seen, you know, much earlier, with places like the Nessa Brodgar in Orkney, you know, with Avebury and Stonehenge, with Noth and Meath in the east of Ireland, the passage graves there in the Valley of Kings on the, on the Valley of the River Boyne, there were already places of such significance that, that we can assume people knowing about them at a great distance and sometimes being drawn to them. And then with the Amesbury archer in his proximity to Stonehenge, the almost unavoidable conclusion to be drawn is that he was attracted to Stonehenge because he had heard of it. The British Isles are already on the map there, there have already been centuries of people further east knowing about these islands far to the west because some of, some of the people have wanted to come to those places because of the people who were there or the things that were happening at those places. And then with the advent of metallurgy, metalworking is developed all over. It's established in the Far East, you know, in China, in Japan. And people independent of one another stumble upon the technology of metalworking somehow or other. And then once that gets up and going and people know what they're looking for, they, they realise there's a lot of tin in Cornwall. And they already, know that, they already know where Cornwall is because there's been reasons to go, there's been reasons to, go to England, whatever they called it, uh, in the past. So by the time the discovery of bronze... And the value of tin and of copper just provides yet another reason to come here. When you visit Cornwall, can you picture the ancient trading vessels moored, ready to do business? Well, yes, because although you need your imagination to paint the picture, you're not making it up. We know that it was happening, that Cornish tin was being distributed across the ancient world. So if you're in, if you're in Cornwall if, and if you're in the vicinity of a mine like, like Giver, you're in the Cassiterites. You can sort of scrub away the name Cornwall, if you like, you know, and you start to get back to Cernua, which is the Cornish for that part of the world. And 
you're just confronted by the reality that underneath modern Cornwall is the old world and that that landscape of the granite cliffs and the cassiterite within it that's there today is the same physical form that attracted Phoenicians and Greeks and the rest. It's the same landscape. It's made of the same stuff and the cassiterite is still there, woven through the rock just as the history is, woven through our understanding of the place. Located within a mountainous sea serpent on the Welsh coast, the largest prehistoric copper mine in the entire world. 4,000 years ago, ancient miners dug the precious copper needed to create bronze. Bronze that would power our species into the future. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out my Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance was taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. Photography is the work of Neil R. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.